0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Well, folks we are so pleased today on the latest edition of the Cuse conversations podcast to welcome on brian simon an assistant professor in the school of information studies otherwise known as the i school here at syracuse university his research it's it's unfortunate that we really seem to be living uh proof and uh, and, and going through exactly what his extensive research has covered uh when it comes to a pandemic and a crisis and living your life and trying to find a sense of normalcy and routine and things are being disrupted right now, Uh, really our resiliency is being challenged and being defined by the COVID-19 novel coronavirus and, uh, and Brian has done extensive research on how people deal with these experiences and how they deal with periods of prolonged uncertainty um, especially when it comes to the use of technology in building up that resiliency, and uh, and Brian was kind enough to join us here on the podcast. Brian, thank you for stopping by today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I know I kind of gave a bit of a generic little introduction to your research, but you know, you're you're fast. It's fascinating how you seem to have come about for us at the podcast we're trying to serve a need for our alumni who are dealing with the same questions that everybody around the world is with this pandemic and you know you hear the phrase the new normal and people are really struggling to try to adjust to this way of life with there being so much fear and uncertainty your research plays hand in hand with a lot of what people are going to need for coping strategies and trying to get their lives on track during this uncertainty. There's a lot to be said for your research and how it's, it's more relevant now than I'm sure ever before, just given the current times we're living in.
1: Yeah. And I think, and I think that is the, like the unfortunate reality is that in, in the research world, my work is probably the most closely aligned and what i've been studying for the last 50, 15 or so years is mo- what is most closely aligned with what we are experiencing now than i think with than, than any other work has talked like this sort of reported on because more or less we so the the work that i'm doing is in this it's in this broad space called crisis informatics which is basically the exploration of technologies you know of, of how technology can be used and how, and, how the, and how technology can serve as a resource in times of, of mass disruption. Um, but most of that work is focused primarily on, on natural disasters and natural hazards like an earthquake or a tornado. Um, but as we know, with events like that, like you, essentially they happen and then they're done. And then people respond to those events and they, they fix, they fix you know they'll fix whatever infrastructure was damaged. And then, and they they repair whatever happened in the environment that needs repair, and then and then life returns back to normal. And of course, it's not that simple. Sometimes you know these things can last a long time. Um, you know the after the the ripple effects. Like if you think of, of something like uh, Hurricane Katrina, and what happened out in New Orleans, especially, you know, like the the ripple effects of that are still being felt today. Um, and so. So I don't want to say that those things don't last a long time, but more in terms of the time in which people are actually embedded within a crisis and experiencing the crisis. That, that is currently what we are experiencing right now. We are just at once trying to remedy and recover from the crisis while also trying to find ways to maintain our lives. Um, and so that's where that's where it becomes super complicated.
0: Give our audience a little bit of insight into your background and your research and how Right now, you really do feel like we're kind of living out some of the topics that have been covered through your research.
1: Yeah, so so thank you. So I, I'll start with like I'll start with the sort of a, a just a, a very quick overview of my personal background and how I actually got interested into this, uh, interested in this line of work. Um, and then I'm going to just give like just a very quick broad overview of the various sort of uh, trajectories of things that I have explored, and then I'll dive into. Um, and then we'll, we can dive into some questions if that sounds good. Um,
0: sounds great to me.
1: Perfect. Um, so, so I am, I am the son of immigrants from Iraq, um, and so I was born and raised in San Diego, San Diego, California, and I'm and I come from a very small minority group in Iraq, and um, where all of us identify as Catholic. Um, and so, part of that is a lot of my family has experienced a lot of turmoil living through living through wars in Iraq. Uh, predominantly, you know, the Iraq-Iran War, the First Gulf War, and some of my family members were, had remained in Iraq even for parts of the Second Gulf War. Um, and so, when I when I got to grad school, um, well, actually, let me let me back up a moment. And so, when I, when I was an undergraduate. Um, I, so I, I was an undergraduate at the University of California, Irvine, and I ended up staying at the University of California, Irvine for my master's and PhD as well. Um, but when I was an undergrad, I was taking, I had really planned on, one, so I really wanted to make video games. But when I was an undergrad, I started taking, a, I, I took a course um, at, called, called The Social Impacts of Technology. Um, And when I took that course, that really was eye-opening and it changed my entire career trajectory where I learned that you could actually study the social implications of technology and also learn how to design and build equitable and human-centered technologies. And so that's really where my passions sort of shifted. Um, And and when I started my PhD program, um, the the second Gulf War was in full effect. Um, and I decided to really try and understand how technology could be used as a resource to enable people to be resilient um, in times of chronic uncertainty when, when people are disrupted for prolonged periods of time. And so that was really where my, my research got started in this space. So it was connected to my identity. Um, a, lot, a lot of that started with that particular research project. Um, and over time, and over time, I have continued to build on that trajectory, really exploring people's experiences in times of chronic uncertainty uh, and prolonged disruption to their routine lives. Um, and so, in addition to studying people living in war zones, I've, um, you know, at Syracuse University, I've been studying for since 2014 the experiences of United States military veterans um, and their transitions back into civil civil society. I've been studying I've been studying um, new mothers. Um, I've been studying people from other marginalized, so I've been studying people with marginalized identities, um, such as students, you know, college students who I would identify as as you know black or Latino, um, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and I've been studying several other things. But this is just to highlight that, in terms of thinking about mass scale disruption, it could be something that's either environmentally create, constructed like a natural hazard, it can be man-made like a war, or it can be systemic and systemically constructed, such as the case is with marginalization, um, and how some marginalized populations are sort of uh, experiencing everyday everyday disruption. And so my work has really focused on that particular topic, which is how you know everyday disruption and how people might be drawing on technology to build resilience.
0: Brian, how much of your background and your research you mentioned you know uh, being Iraqi and growing up in California and identifying as a Catholic and, and I'm sure that there was a lot of societal uh, issues that you met, you and your family like you mentioned probably had to deal with when it came to whether it's misconceptions or it's it's judging and and there was a hostility and and, and, and people during times of war get very our ethnocentricities come out and and people, and I'm, I guess I'm wondering how much of that experience, you know, as growing up and, and having your background, what role did that play in driving you down this, this line of work that you're currently studying and, and researching?
1: It, it played a significant role, right? And I, and I always, and, and like something that I always talk to my students about is that you really have to find research that you are going to be passionate about, because this is something that you will be studying for at least three years or so as a dissertation project, or for potentially, you know, a career. Um, And so a lot of, and so, oh, and so a lot of my experiences and a lot of, and a lot of what I had experienced growing up were super formative in terms of making me I guess like kind of waking me up to the realities of the world, Um, and so I know during so like and one of those experiences was during the first Gulf War. So when the first Gulf War had started, so we we, so my siblings and I we we grew up and we had this like sort of we had like a really beautiful childhood where we had you know and we had all this agency and freedom in terms of playing outside, going to our neighbors' houses and playing in their yards, Um, and specifically our. Um, the neighbor that we had, where our back our backyards were connected, um, and at one point our our dads decided that they wanted to re, they wanted to redo redo the fence in the backyard, and so they split the cost and they, they installed a gate so that we could have easy access to each other's backyards because um, my siblings and I and their and my our neighbors' kids, um, we used to play together all the time. Um, and right and right after, like right when the first school four started, we went outside and we found that there was a lock on that gate. Um, and we and when we called to our neighbors from the backyard, they told us our dad our dad said we can't talk to you anymore because you guys are the enemy. And so like these these sorts of experiences like you don't you don't it's very hard to forget those kinds of experiences. Um, and that and that was one of many um, experiences that we had growing up. so sort of just experiencing like hostility or racism you know in our in our environment. Um, and my and my parents who actually speak with accents, you know and you can imagine they, their their experiences are even,
0: more profoundly worse. That's a really hard concept to deal with. I could imagine as a, as a youngster. And I'm, I'm glad, I will say, I'm glad Brian, that you took a lot of those experiences people, I think, and, and you know, this more than, than I do, but you know, people take those negative experiences and they can either go one of two directions. They can use it as a motivating force to, to accomplish change and make their world a better place, or they can cave into it. And the, the, the worst of humanity can really creep in and it can have a, quite a negative effect on civilization and how people interact with their fellow uh, human beings. And right now it feels like we need a lot more of the coming together, which right now, you know, this is a great opportunity to kind of transition if you will, to this uncertain time that we're all living in right now. We've, we've taken for granted a lot of the things that we used to enjoy going out to the restaurants in our neighborhood, going to the movies, going to sporting events and concerts. And right now, you know, we're not able to do that. We can watch, virtual concerts on our laptop but a lot of the things that we took for granted are no longer we don't take them for granted anymore when you have a an activity that's taken away from you just because we can't go outside and we have to practice safe social distancing i imagine brian that a lot of what you know you can talk about you know people there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear right now as to whether this is the new normal and whether we're going to have to deal with a new whether we'll ever get to a point where life goes back to pre-March of 2020 when it comes to our freedoms and our abilities to enjoy activities that we really uh, enjoyed in the past. How, how, how do you, what, what advice do you give to people when it comes to just starting generic and starting broad of dealing with this reality that we're in now and how it's disrupted their lives?
1: Yeah, it's, it is. It's very difficult, right? And I think. And I think to to add to the previous conversation, because I, I think there was like one thing that I really wanted to mention as I dive into this, which is like another like one of the other formative experiences. I think I think it's important to point out that like uh, living in coming from an immigrant family who is also living in the pretty large immigrant community, you know, I got I got to experience resilience every single day. Um, In the sense that my parents, you know, my parents left what was very familiar to them. Um, Growing up in a country with with very familiar norms, with familiar people, with familiar food, familiar languages, you know, they, they were in school, they uprooted and left. Um, and they built something here and I often, and I often, and so like a lot of my questions also started with like, you know, how, the, you know, how the heck did they do that? You know, I think like what I failed miserably, if I had to do the same thing, like I often imagine if I had to just leave, if I had to leave what I consider, you know, a very beautiful life in the, in the United States and just go to some other country, you know, how, how would I, how would I, would I survive that? You know, and my, and my parents, they really put, they really put themselves, um, you know, they really put us and our lives first, and they worked all the time. And so I really got to see sort of like this everyday resilience in terms of how they were structuring their lives and really doing things for our family, also within the community and more broadly. Um, and so that kind of leads into like, you know, so we are we are currently in an environment where we do face everyday, where things are uncertain. And it's hard. And, and I have to admit, you know, the, for, for the past month, I haven't found... You know, like a lot of the motivation that I often have for doing certain things has been lost. Right. And so and so I think it's important to stress that even though I, even though I study this stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm very good at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, like I'm, not, I'm not. So and part of and part of that is that in. In shifting from being able to just do things as we naturally would and normally would, to sort of like reconstructing our entire lives around safe social distancing and safety, you know, and and re and so there there is a lot that is lost, right? So I think I think it's important to stress the following, which is we are all experiencing, and or at least not all, but many of us are experiencing a loss and a sense of grief and anxiety over the routines that we once that we once were able to engage in every day. Right. So those, so you know, the just the easy trips to the market are now super complicated, right? Like many of us question going to the market. You know, and, and we're when we're trying to figure out like, you know, and when and when we're there, how do we stay safe? Everything that was once easy is super stressful now. Um, we can't we can no longer just simply do those things that we we love to do, like socialize with people, go out to eat, go to bars as you had mentioned, right? So all these things that we found comfort in they were reliable right we could rely on these things that we did every day and all of that is lost and it was lost um so some of the primary advice that i often give to people is um you know you don't have to it's it's not necessarily about maintaining the same exact routines right so i I think it's important to establish a new routine. I think this is important um, because in, in all of the work that I have done, whether it was looking at people, you know, Iraqis living in the war zone, looking at veterans as they transition back into civil society, looking at um, you know at LGBTQ identifying populations and their and the coming out experience, a lot of a lot of their experience, a lot of the experiences of these populations and their ability to build resilience has been centered around. Um, you know how they construct a routine, right? And so finding some finding some way to find a like develop a manageable routine that they can engage in. And I say this, but I, and I think it's important to to so I really want to stress that it's not about this the old routine and just finding a new way to do it. So, you know, in a lot of the work that I've done, people would, you know, like back back in two thousand six when I was studying Iraqis in the war zone. They essentially found they they started to adopt all these technologies. So, like to give some context, prior to the Second Gulf War, technology was essentially non-existent in Iraq. because because of the wars, because of the over ten years of sanctions in the country, there were no goods that were and so there were no goods entering the country. Meanwhile, the the electric infrastructure, the water infrastructure, all these infrastructures were being destroyed and depleted. Um, so, after the Second Gulf War, when the sanctions were lifted, people for the first time in their lives had access to real internet. They had access to mobile phones, they had access to laptops um, to really develop resilience um, for themselves and their communities.
0: There's an article that um, we, we're going to reference here a little bit during the podcast, and I wanted to give you give you an opportunity to talk about it, where it's basically titled "Life in the Time of CoVID." And you talk about one of the phrases that I found was really fascinating was, I'm going to read a quote from the article here, even when disruption is planned, these experiences can be debilitating. They require that a lot of our attention and mental energy be spent on adjusting and renegotiating critical aspects of our lives. And, and that what, I, what, I, what drew me about that, Brian, was the fact that we're still, for people that are parents, they're juggling, if they still have their job, they're juggling working from home. If they have kids in the house, they're teaching them, they're going through um, homeschooling and and this is a very challenging time for students who are trying to get ready, you know, for the end of their years, whether whatever grade level they're in. And on top of that, you have this great unknown of again, COVID nineteen, and we just don't know. There could be a second rash of cases that come up, you know, if we don't continue to flatten the curve the way that we've done. So that's a whole ball of uncertainty on top of the uncertainty that is life here in 2020 right now. So there's, I, I thought it was really fascinating just to think about these disruptions and how much our life has really been disrupted. And you said it best. It's not like we're trying to bring back routines that we did previously, our old routines. It's adjusting to the challenges that are currently being presented us and finding a way to make a new routine, make a new day-to-day routine, because we can't all just sit back on our couches and binge watch Netflix for 24 hours a day, as fun as that might be.
1: Exactly. And, and I think it's a to highlight, right? So, So we are all... So I think, like, because we are all experiencing this thing together, right? And and I think so. Because one one of the like one of the common things that I found in my work is so a lot of people when they go through a like a crisis or they experience a disruptive event in their life, they often think that they're alone in it. And but like you know, but when they look, but when but if like but when they look at social media and and you know and they see things that are happening, they it might you know it might trigger the thought that oh maybe you know I am. I am not alone in this. And, you know, that was most salient with veterans and because, you know, veterans coming from this, like, super hyper-masculine culture, often, you know, you know they're trained to show strength. And so they're not always willing to, like, disclose their struggles with mental health um, or even seek help and support in certain ways, right? But, like, you know, but by seeing other people online, especially veterans who are experiencing the same thing, talk about those things, um, you know, it can be very useful, and I think, and I think it's important to stress that. that I'm, and I'm saying this because I want people to understand that people, everyone, is experiencing this. Um, but having said that, I also want to stress that not everybody is experiencing it the same way, right? So there, there really are these different sort of like, um, like, uh, like I've, I've been kind of, def- I've been describing it because I'm I'm starting to ramp up some research with my students to really dive into this a bit. But you know, they're essentially like what I would—I'm like, kind of framing it this way right now. I don't know if this is the right way of framing it. We're still working out the details. But it's almost like these different classes are beginning to emerge um, around you know the impact of COVID on people's lives, right? So like we have we have this like class that can still work, that has virtual happy hours, that can that has the has access to the internet etc we have we have a class that's like that's similar to that one but maybe they can't work but they but they still had you know they, they still have the like a, the opportunity and the ability and the privilege to like you know to have a home and to have electricity and to continue using the internet and things but then we have these other class like they, these other classes where it's like the essential workers who are being forced to work um, and so, like you know, so like if we ever, like you know, if, if if I ever use Instacart, it's essentially like I've I've been likening it to me. I'm using Instacart to keep myself and my family safe, but I'm but I'm putting some other person and their family at risk by doing that. You know, and there and there are these other classes of people that like they can't they they can't afford the internet or they don't have internet access. Um, maybe they're in a resource constrained or resource restricted environment. So I think there are, there are all these things that are happening. I think there are going to be these new emerging um, categories of marginalization um, that we're going to see. And that's sort of where my research is headed right now, to really explore that aspect of it. Um, and I think that's important to highlight because we are, because yeah, I think that's what I want to stress. We are all experiencing it, but there, it is the, the crisis, but COVID is having differential impact on different communities. Um, and different people with different intersectional identities.
0: There's a lot of people that have lost their jobs, are battling unemployment. They're battling not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. They've got kids um, that are really struggling with, <clears throat> they're adjusting to this new routine that they're in. How? What resources can be made available to people that might be in the lower echelon of that class system, for lack of a better word, who are are struggling and just don't have nearly the resources and capabilities that other people do to try to, because again, you're right. This doesn't discriminate. You know, it's, it seems like it's, it's really an unfair playing field um, in that regard. It is. And I, and
1: I think, so this is, this, this is something that I always, I always think it's important to marry scholarship with policy. Um, And so as an example, like in a, in a lot of my work, I have stressed so, I mean, the, the people that, have, so, like, you know, if I go back to the first study that I, that I ever did in this space, which is going back to the Iraq, the Iraq War context, the people that were the most resilient were the people that were able to, um, you know, find the means to, find, like, you know, to like, create internet infrastructure in their communities, to actually have internet access at home to find fuel to power their generators so that they could actually power their internet-enabled devices. Because for a lot of people, the success success came in being able to routinize social, like routinize social interaction, um, opportunities that come with being able to go online um, and things like that. And so this kind of comes back to, so again, this is, for me, it's like like, very hyper, it's like a very hyper-liberal perspective, of course um but this kind of gets into you know all of these things that we would talk about around like you know what what are what would be some like very fundamental or universal basic rights or freedoms or or things that people should have or should have access to you know and i do and i do think, <laughs> and I do think that the internet or some some way of actually uh, using the internet should be one of those things um you know and 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 you do see a lot you know i mean the, the the library is, is an example of a very community a community centered space that does provide things like access for you know to the internet to populations. Um, but you know in a in a time like this where it's you can't you can't go to the you can't go to a library, right? So like so I think this kind of leads to like you know, I think the infrastructure needs to be redesigned about around being, you know, like fully, fully wire, like fully wireless, so to speak, so that people can access the internet from anywhere. Anybody should have access to it. There should be more public access points. But I think the the thing with crisis is crises also highlight a lot of issues um, in, in how society is currently constructed. Um, and so I really see them as opportunities to um, understand where, where we went wrong and to then try and resolve those issues But the question is, I mean, do we like how how do we channel what we're learning to actually make more long term profound changes that will be useful for everybody?
0: And when you talk about technology and you talk about the access to the Internet, um, social media, even, you know, even when 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 we were living before this pandemic, you know, there were always those little running jokes that everybody's always on their screen all the time. And so I know, you know, it's the Internet has 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 pros and has cons and social media has a lot of advantages during the situation to make people feel connected, but there's a sense of isolation that a lot of us are dealing with right now. Uh, isolation from friends, isolation from family, isolation from a workplace, isolation from your church. Um, this it, it's, it's really a rampant sense of, of loneliness a lot of times people can be feeling. How do you recommend, Brian, people try to go about during these chaotic times of connecting with and, and and building together a community in a different variety, given the fact that again there's still restrictions placed on physical community, how can they use the online and the virtual uh, resources to find a sense of community uh, that might be missing from the physical sense?
1: Yeah that that's a great that's a great question and. And I also want to like I kind of I want I want to respond to that question by also highlighting <laughs> by also highlighting some negatives because I, I do I do want to make it clear I am in in many ways I I do think a lot about the moral and ethical implications of technology. And I think so on the one hand on the one hand technology does allow us to find community, right? So like to, so to answer your question, you know, there there are so many there are so many things available online like you know, i think like there are different online online communities right so you can find online discussion groups you can go to you can go to reddit there are facebook groups um, there are all these sort of things that like you know there, there are these different social media platforms that people are using right now um, to create community and to find people who are, who have like-minded interests where they can continue to sustain those interests in certain things. Um, you know, if, if people have the ability or the opportunity, you know, if they, if they have the resources, you know, like doing, you know, like, so something that I've been doing because, you know, writing, writing in isolation can be really isolating sometimes. Um, some, of my, some of my colleagues from across the globe have been doing these um, virtual, these like virtual writing, like writing co-writing sessions. As an example, we're like we just turn on Zoom or Skype or whatever we want to use, and we all just write for two hours, and we're just all together, and we'll have some conversations and things, um, like that. We, you know my students and I, we've been doing. Um, so I generally have a lab game night at my house, um, and we have converted that to a virtual game night over Zoom. And we're playing all those different Jackbox games, um, so so there are different things that people can do um, to find community. But I, but but it is but it but it is important to stress that it's it is almost impossible to replace touch, right? So so just having someone you know seeing someone in person, um, you know, getting you know see like when you're interacting with people in person and all the things that come with co-located face-to-face interaction. You know, like sight, smell, touch, like um, getting, actually reading people, like re- reading people's uh, facial expressions and their gestures. Um, you know, just like the, the one, like, you know, like like how many of us right now feel like they really just want to give somebody a hug, right, there's, there's, it's very hard to replace that. Um, but there are ways to like, you know, there are ways to sort of at least like get close in terms of what I was describing. But I think the other thing that I want to highlight are some of the issues with social, like you know, with social media platforms, um, and how you know, if, if so, because I know you were talking about loneliness and isolation, um, and so I, I can't I can't go into specifics, but I've been but I have been collaborating with a large with a large social media platform to really address some of these issues around loneliness. Um and isolation because even pre-covid, a lot of findings suggest that platform online you know social media platforms can make people feel more isolated and and or lonely and why is that and it's well there, you know there's on the one hand on the one hand a lot it, you have to ask the question of um, are people actually authentic in these online spaces right primarily on social media right so there's So, um, so there's a scholar who I really, you know, who a lot of people draw on, um, Irving Goffman, who developed this concept of impression management. Um, And essentially, what that idea is is that people draw on rules and norms in their social setting um, to then manage how they act outwardly, so that you know people actually form impressions about them that are positive. Um, And so, in the context of online media, media, and especially, like you know, with platforms like Facebook and Instagram as examples, people are usually just putting their best foot forward, and it's only this very positive version of themselves. Um, and and the problem with that, and what causes and what causes a lot of loneliness and isolation, is that when people, when other people are seeing this, um, right, there's a lot of social comparison that happens. Right. So people, they look at what other people are doing and what other people are saying and how other people's lives are. And then it makes them feel a deficit. So like when I'm on Facebook, what do I see? I see people, you know, people have kids and their kids are so much cuter than mine and people's the food that people <laughs> eat is so much better. Like you know, they're, they're eating much healthier or they're eating much more delicious food or their jobs and lives are so much better. Um, but the thing that I always stress to people, and I said and I always and this is really resonating, it's like really in my head right now, because I give I give a social media lecture the last day of class in my human computer interaction course uh, to talk about a lot of its problems. And the thing that I stress is that people have to remember that on social media it it is not it is always a very curated best version of someone for the most part, and people aren't posting all the negative things. And I always use the example of like, how many of us know a a friend or a family member who's in a relationship, who on social media, they're always posting all these lovey-dovey, happy photos, and and what have you, but then you know when they're together and when you're with them, all they do is fight. Um, And so... And so it's important to say, like, you know, what people are actually putting out there is such a small sliver of reality. Um, and so if we, and so I think it's important to, for people to keep that in mind, even in times of COVID, like in this time of COVID, because if they're seeing that people are posting all these things about, oh, like, you know, they're having all this fun with their family or they're making bread, they're also not getting into the realities as you've described, which is like, you know, single mothers right now, as an example, you know, they, they, it's like how how do you work when your kids are at home and you have to homeschool them? Even even dual, you know, even parents, like you know, even if you have two parents at home and you have kids, like how much more complicated has life become? Right. And so this is where this is where I want to stress that it's it's not about so again, like why why was I saying that it's not necessarily important to maintain the same routine? Right. But you know, that productivity or whatever you consider to be productive pre-COVID, it can be a different kind of productivity now, right? Like Like if I'm playing, if I'm playing a game for two hours now um, to fill time and that's bringing me like, you know, that's, that's good for my mental health. I think that's a super productive use of time. It doesn't have to still be, it doesn't have to be the same exact kind of work that I was doing before and things of that nature. So this is like really, I I really wanted to just stress that. So like, you know, on the one hand, social, social media, and online community can really help us find community. It can help us find resources, um, it can help us learn of, of ways to actually, of, of, it can help us learn things that we can actually bring into our lives in the present to remedy certain issues. Um, but on the other hand, it can also help propagate this false sense of reality.
0: Yeah, people, you're right. People only put up, you're not going to see people's bad hair day photos getting posted on Instagram, but you're going to see them all glammed up and looking like they're living their best life. And it does only put the the positive you know spin out there and and people you you're right there's also unintended consequences you might be doing that for whatever your purposes and, and motivations are but if i'm reading that or if i'm looking at that post and i'm having a bad day or i'm feeling insecure about something that could trigger a whole avalanche of other feelings that lead to us a, a downward spiral when it comes to my psyche and my emotional well-being and it's a uh, it's fascinating the research brian that you you've been doing so far and we so far i think we've really touched on a lot of topics pertaining to Covid nineteen. I want to go to one more aspect of your research, and again, this is again in this article, "Life in the Time of Covid." We talk about um, tips for uh, how people deal with long-term disruption and how that, that people can restore security, relying on resiliency. We've talked about ways to maintain the routine, developing a new routine, finding and creating connections with others, and the last part that I feel is so important is engaging in activities for the greater good repurposing your life and your tools. It might seem like it's hard to focus on the outside community and giving back during this time of COVID-19. But in your opinion, Brian, it's almost more important now than previously to not forget about the lesser of our citizens who are struggling, who are really hurting financially and hurting with their resources. How can people try to use this pandemic for good to give back through activities that help benefit their community? Yeah. So,
1: so I do think, so I do think that is super important, right? And I, and I think, and I I do want to highlight that in the work that I've done, I have found, I've looked at how people have been resilient, resilient individually, how they've been resilient as a group in their family or in a larger community, but also how people are building resilience more for society, more broadly. Um, and I can't stress enough the importance, as you had described, of giving back, you know, um, and or or you know, or doing things that are community centered. Um, and so, and we are seeing this right now, you know. So, so in people, how how people are repurposing their three D printers to print masks for health, for, you know, for people who are on the front lines, all of our healthcare workers, um, you know, and that and that's. That's a wonderful thing, but you have to have a three D printer. And so, I think it's really important for people to think about, well, what are what are some of the things that they have? What are some of the skills or tools that they have, or things that they or things that they can do to give back? Um, and so, and that and that can be a wide range of things, right? It could be it could be something as simple as, you know, making yourself available, like you know, going online. To an online forum, you know, there, there. I think it's important to stress that there are a lot of people that pre-COVID have been experience, have experienced or lived with mental health, you know, with mental health, um, right? People who suffer from depression, um, people who, you know, people who are, who are who are suicidal, people who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and their isolation, I can imagine, is only becoming more exacerbated. So it could be something as, you know, as simple as saying, like, you know, making your, like going to online communities or finding spaces where people are and just saying, you know, I, I will, and making myself available for conversations for an hour a day, just to let you know that I am here. I'm here to listen to your struggles, right? And there, there are so many different ways that people can, can give back. And, you know, and it could be even like, you know, with your neighbors, like if you're living, if you're living in a neighborhood um, with people who are, Um, you know, more vulnerable, you know, offering to buy them groceries or to clean their groceries for them um, or to help them with their, you know, help them with yard work. And There are so many ways to like repurpose ourselves um, to really sort of help others. And I think it's important to stress that in times of crisis, there's this misconception that people often panic and they become selfish, but it's actually quite the opposite. And the disaster sociology literature and in all of the work that I've done, right, the, the, you know, and this disaster sociology literature started in the late 1800s, one of the common findings has been that people are super altruistic and very pro-social good in times of crisis. And I think it's important, and, and that really can be something that people can channel and routinize. Um, and that'll be also, I think, very beneficial for your own mental, your own well-being.
0: Well, Brian, it's really, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, COVID 19 has forced us to again be living through a lot of these key areas of your research here at the School of Information Studies uh, at Syracuse. But I feel like it's really helped to give people some insights into how they can try to get their lives in order as best they can and cope uh, with these different difficult times that we're living in and the resiliency. You know, you're right. A lot of people, I think, think of hoarding toilet paper and hoarding their resources for themselves when the reality is it does seem like we come together. It almost seems like we only come together during uh, times of, of a crisis because we, we get so focused on our own lives that when there's a disruption like this, it really forces us to focus on the greater good and, and getting through this together. And hopefully um, for the alumni that have listened to Brian, um, you've been able to take away some positives from his 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 awesome podcast with us here on the Q's Conversations podcast about how you can cope and deal with again these really trying and uncertain times, Brian. We wish you nothing but the best of luck with your future endeavors. We can't wait to see what comes out with uh, the work you're talking about with with social media, and uh, and I'm sure we'll have some some future conversations down the road. But keep up the great work, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.